So I am here today with my friend Coco, who has decided graciously to be a guest host on this episode. Hi. Yes. Uh, Coco, do you want to tell me anything about yourself? Um, I guess when I was a kid, I went to my cousin's house, and all we would say is, we're hiding the swings and we don't care. Nice. So I love swinging. Swinging's um, good. Swimming underwater I really like, and drawing. Ah, you do like painting. Mm. I like painting a lot, too. It is very fun. Yes. Do you like playing with your cousins a lot? Yeah, they come over pretty frequently. They do. I've seen them here several times. Mm-hmm. They're here a lot now. Yeah. Your two cousins. Are those the only cousins you have? No, not at all. You have a ton? Some in New Zealand, some that came over once last week, a couple weeks ago. Ah. You have cousins in New Zealand? Yes. What? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's pretty classy. I have like three cousins. <laughs> And then I don't know really any of the cousins my on my dad's dad side. Has trillions. Trillions? That's a not, lot of cousins. Not exactly, but Probably close. Mm-hmm. That's that's a lot. What kind of books do you like to read? These are just called like creepy mystery. I have a mystery book up there, haunted house books. Ooh. Does that have scary stories? Yeah. Not too scary, but scary. Yeah, I love creepy stuff. It's like one of my favorite things ever. But then I get scared, and then I don't want to be alone because <laughs> I'm creeped out. I'm like, yeah. oh. Um, my Mona has a bunk bed, and I always like I ask my mom, can I can I sleep with Mona? Yeah, dude. I know. I always get creeped out too. I'm always like, I want to look into it, and then I look into it, and then I get scared. And then I regret it. Then I'm like, I'm going to look into it later when it's, like, daylight outside. Okay. When I'm less creeped out. But, yeah. No, I love creepy stuff. It is one of my favorites. Ooh, Big Dad is fun. I know. Until you're alone. And then you can't <laughs> sleep. And then it's, like, not. Then it's, then it's real creepy. Mm-hmm. But, so, tonight we are going to talk about something that might be a little creepy. It's a little weird. It's a little bizarre and unusual. We are going to talk about the third man factor. And my sources, just so I don't plagiarize anyone because that's not okay. I don't take their work. Uh, My sources are Wikipedia, NPR, had an article on it, Reddit, Mm -hmm. and Ranker. Did you see the NPR one? No, I did not. Okay, yeah. I, I saw, saw a link to, like, NPR. Yeah. An NPR link. Yeah, you know if NPR covers it, it's pretty legit. Okay, so a little bit about the third man factor. So it's called the third man factor or third man syndrome. And it's where a traumatic situation happens, or, like, a scary situation happens. Mm-hmm. And this unseen presence supplies comfort or support. So it's not creepy creepy, but it's a little weird. Okay, what if that ever happened to me? Then hopefully they'll help you and it won't be creepy. And they'll give you comfort and support. So the first ever case of this happening, where it's like written down, was in this guy uh, whose name is Sir Ernest Shackleton. He wrote a book. (laughs) He sounds pretty bougie. (laughs) Uh, He wrote a book in the early 1900s. And his book was called South, and he wrote about kind of the final leg of this journey he took to Antarctica, Mm -hmm. which I feel like would be terrible, because that would be so cold. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I I wouldn't like it. So he talked in this about how he was convinced um, during the end part of his journey that there was somebody else with him and his two other companions. And he said in the book, during that long and racking march, which I don't know what racking means, but it probably (laughs) means like tiring. Or crazy. Crazy. Of 36 hours over the unnamed mountains and glaciers of South Georgia, it seemed to me often that we were four and not three. So when he came out with his book and he talked about like 
you know, I feel like there's somebody else there, blah, blah, blah. So when he came out and talked about it, all these other people started talking about their experiences. So they didn't feel like, oh, I got to be weird and like hide this. And like alone. Like, mm-hmm. like the commercials where you're not alone. Is very true. Yeah. So he came out with that. And so a ton of other people were like, oh, that happened to me too. Actually. Which oh, I can hear Rye <laughs> in my microphone. If you hear a baby crying, it's his name is Ryan. He's very cute and chunky. So, what? Chunky. He is so chunky. And his first word was chips. Yeah, and then he did a little dance. Because once we bought a box of chips, and then he just... He was excited? <laughs> he said, chips, and danced. <laughs> it's because he's a little chunky boy. Yeah, I was like, Ari, your child's going to grow up and be... He's going to be a chunker if his first word was chips. <laughs> a little fatty butt. Um, okay, so the name Third Man Factor, it comes from a poem, actually. Um, it's T.S. Eliot's, Eliot's poem called The Wasteland, which was inspired by Sir Ernest Shackleton's experience. So the largest group... So the largest group to report these experiences are climbers. So like people climbing like Mount Everest or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, The next is sailors. So people on a boat. Okay. Seeing some stuff or not seeing stuff, but feeling some stuff. Um, Shipwreck survivors, which sounds like the worst thing in the entire world. I know. That would be terrible to be stuck out in the ocean all by yourself. And then hallucinating someone helping you. Okay, I have one question, actually. Mm Mm-hmm. How do they survive? Is someone actually there? Oh, you will see. Okay. You will. I know. It's very strange. It's very creepy. Um, And the third most common is polar explorers. Huh? So people who are like climbing mountains or like in Antarctica, like Ernest Shackleton, Sir Ernest Shackleton and his polar exploration, which is weird that that's the third most common because I feel like not many people do that. Okay, so modern psychologists have talked about how they have no idea why this happens. Like they don't know where it comes from. They have some theories. But basically, it's just a really weird phenomenon that occurs, and it's hard for them to kind of figure it out because it's so uncommon, but a lot of people, it's happened to them, but it's not common enough to kind of figure out. While you talk about this, I'm just Mm. thinking, right after this podcast, we go on a hike, and then I get lost in the middle and someone helps me. What if that actually happens? See if somebody will rescue you. You You can test it out. But just don't. I don't want to. <laughs> I do not want to. But they'll save you. So they've found, like, basically the only common thread they've found in stories where this has happened is the unseen force or whatever it is gives the people comfort. It helps them not feel lonely. Um, it helps them not feel hopeless or, um, you know, basically it just gives them, like, the will to like continue to try to survive so a lot of times it'll come when somebody's like at their most like hopeless where they're like i'm not going to survive i'm going to die here mm-hmm. and then they'll like kind of sense that there's this thing there sense so they don't see them Mm-mm. nope it's like a feeling, a feeling? yeah that's even weirder i know so yeah they'll just like feel like they're not alone like you know how you feel when you're alone and then how you feel when you like know someone's there like you can like sense the difference kind of yeah like i sometimes i get scared sleeping in here alone and then the, uh dad comes down to tuck me in and i'm like no i'm just up there you could always scream for help if you really do need something that's true yeah they are right above you but i used to get creeped out sleeping alone all the time <laughs> Because I slept with my sister forever, and then she had to leave, and then I got scared. So, John Geyer, who you know a little bit about, wrote a book called The Third Man Factor, Surviving the Impossible. So, basically, he took five years and was like, 
I'm going to talk to all these people and get all their stories and put them all in one place. So here's some quotes from him, um, which is actually from the NPR article. So he says, clearly there is a spiritual or religious explanation to this phenomenon. Geiger tells Guy Raz. I don't know who Guy Raz is, but that's probably who was interviewing him. Um, but he also says that there's strong science behind the third man. He says, many skeptics and non-believers also had this experience and they attribute it to other explanations. And there is certainly some very interesting science behind this. If we understand that the third man factor is a part of us, the way adrenaline is, then we can start to access it more easily, which I don't even know what he means by that. Like we can make it happen all the time. Um, and then he says, it's not a hallucination in the sense that hallucina hallucinations are, are disordering. This is very helpful and orderly guide. So he's like, people aren't scared when it happens. Like okay. they feel, they feel safe, they're helped. And like, have you ever been like super, super sick? And like, like when you get like really confused when you're really sick and you're on cold medicine? Yeah. Yeah. He's, cold medicine sucks. I know. But it's, supposed to taste like bubblegum. It tastes like earwax. Don't blame me for trying it, okay? See, you, okay, Jeez. when I was a kid, that kind that we got when we had colds, like, legit tasted like bubblegum. Like bubblegum cotton candy. No, it was so flipping good. And it was, like, pink. What happened? I don't know, but I... It's pink just to make it look like, oh, <laughs> that looks so good. But no. It's not. It tastes disgusting. Yeah, no, it, used to, it was, like, cotton candy. It was so flipping good. I'd always be like, Mom, I need more medicine. Yeah, it was delicious. So you got you got the short end of the stick on that one. So I am going to read you. This is an excerpt from his book. This is in the first chapter. And so this is an experience somebody had of the third man factor. Okay. So his name is Ron DeFrancisco. Francisco. We'll say Francisco because that's easier. Okay. So he was at his desk. This is about 9-11. 9-11? Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. So Ron Francisco de Francisco oh was at his desk at Euro Brokers, a financial trading ah. firm, on the 84th floor of the South Tower of the World Trade Center in New York when the plane struck the North Tower opposite him. It was 8.46 a.m. on September 11th, 2001 which is before you were born, which is crazy to me. Cause I remember when this happened. Um, there was a loud boom and the lights in the South Tower flickered. Gray smoke poured from the North Tower. At impact, all the stairwells in the North Tower became impassable from the 92nd store floor up, trapping um, 1,356 people. Okay, wait, is, did you say impossible wrong? Impossible or impassable. impassable. Yeah, so you can't, you couldn't get through the stairwell. Uh, so it was blocked. Impossible. Impassable. Impossible, yes. Okay. Um, some waved desperately for help. Most of those who worked at Euro Brokers started to evacuate the building, but DeFrancisco stayed. A few minutes later, a terse announcement was broadcast over the building's public address system. An incident had occurred in the other building, but building two is secure. So this is before he was in the building that got hit by the plane second. Um, there's no need to evacuate building two. If you are in the midst of, I lost my space, where'd it go? Whoa, oh my, oh, oh God, good Lord. If you're in the midst of evacuation, you may return to your office by using the re-entry doors on the re-entry floor and the elevators to return to your office, which is, and saying that they were like, hey, just go back to work. Good Lord. So repeat, building two is secure. DeFrancisco, a money market broker, originally from Hamilton, Ontario, telephoned his wife, Mary, to tell her that an airplane had hit the other tower, but that he was fine and intended to stay at work, which is insane. It was tower one that was hit. I'm in tower two, he told her. He tried to refocus his attention on the screens of financial data on his desk. Then a friend from Toronto called, uh, get out, he said. They spoke briefly, then DeFrancisco agreed. He called a few major clients and his wife Mary again to tell them of his change of plans. 
Then he began walking towards a bank of elevators. At 9.03 a.m., 17 minutes after the first impact, the second plane hit. United Airlines Flight 175, traveling at 590 miles an hour, sliced into the South Tower, igniting an intense fire fed by up to 11,000 gallons of jet fuel. The Boeing 767, carrying 56 passengers, two pilots, and seven flight attendants, had been commandeered by Al-Qaeda terrorists after taking off from Boston's Logan International Airport en route to Los Angeles. It struck the building's south face between the floors uh, 77 and 85. The pain, the pain, the plane. God, I feel like my contacts are like fogging up. The plane banked just before it slammed into the building. The higher wing cut into the Eurobroker's offices while the fuselage hit the Fuji Bank offices on the 79th. Fuji, oh, maybe it's, no, it's Fuji. I was supposed to say maybe it's Fuji, it's Fuji Bank. On the 79th through 82nd floors. DeFrancisco was hurled against the wall and showered with ceiling panels and other debris. Brackets, air ducts, and cables sprang from the ceiling. The building swayed. The trading floor he had just left no longer existed. So if he hadn't gotten up and left where he his office was, he would have like immediately died. DeFrancisco entered stairwell A, the South Tower. Uh, the South Tower had three emergency stairwells. He had stumbled on the only one that had offered hope of escape for people above the zone of impact. The stairwell was shielded from destruction by an enormous elevator machine room on the 81st floor where the nose of the 767 hit. The elevator equipment covered more than half the floor space and had forced the tower's architects to route stairway, blah, 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 blah. Okay, he was safe in that one. Um, so the stairwell was smoky, lit only by a flashlight carried by Brian Clark, an executive vice president at Eurobrokers, and a volunteer fire marshal on the 84th floor. Three flights down, they encountered a heavy woman and a male colleague who were coming up. You've got to go up. You can't go down, the woman insisted. There's too much smoke and flames below. They debated whether to ascend and either wait for the firefighters or a rooftop rescue by helicopter or persist with their descent, risking the smoke and flames. Clark shone his flashlight into his colleagues' faces, asking each up or down. They heard someone call for help. Brian Clark grabbed DeFrancisco by the sleeve. Come on, Ron, let's go get this fellow. The two men left the stairwell and fought through debris on the 81st floor to locate the person. Good Lord, going through 81 floors? Oh, it'd be so hard. But DeFrancisco was soon overcome by smoke. He had a backpack and held it over his face in an attempt to filter the air, but it wasn't helping and he was forced to retreat. Gasping for air, he decided to ascend, hoping to escape the smoke. He climbed several flights, but at each landing, when he tested the fire doors, he discovered they were locked. A mechanism designed to prevent smoke from flooding the building had malfunctioned after the impact, preventing any of the doors, um, even on designated reentry floors, from being opened. He continued to climb and eventually caught up with some colleagues from Eurobrokers, several of whom were helping the large woman. So he went back up. She had convinced all of them that the best escape route was the South Tower. But as DeFrancisco continued up, um, but the stairwell became more crowded. All the fire doors were locked. He guessed he had reached the 91st floor of the 110-story building. Oh, my God. I know. It's so big. Ron is normally unflappable. He is a money market broker and a high-stakes business that demands steel nerves but he is slightly claustrophobic. And with intensifying smoke, he began to panic. He thought of his family, that he had to see his wife and children again at all costs. He determined that he was gonna make it out. DeFrancisco decided to turn around and start back down. This time, the situation was much worse. Thick smoke poured up the narrow stairwell. He groped his way down, unable to see more than a few feet ahead because the smoke was so thick, he couldn't see anything. He stopped at a landing in the middle of the impact zone on the 79th or 80th floor. Overcome by the smoke, he joined others, about a dozen people in all, some stretched out face down on the concrete floor. Others crouched in the corner, all gasping for air. They were blocked from descending further by a collapsed wall. He could see panic in their eyes and fear. Some were crying. Several began to slip into unconsciousness. 
Then something remarkable happened. Someone told me to get up. Someone, he said, called me. The voice, which was male, but did not belong to one of the people in the stairwell, was insistent. Get up, it addressed. D. Francisco by his first name. And gave him encouragement. It was, hey, you can do this. But was it was more than a voice. There was also a vivid sense of a physical presence. A lot of people made split-second decisions that day that determined whether they lived or died. What is different about Ron's is that at a critical moment, he reached help from a seemingly external source. He had the sensation that somebody lifted me up. He felt that he was being guided. I was led to the stairs. I don't think someone grabbed my hand, but I was definitely led. He resumed his descent and soon saw a point of light. He followed it, fighting his way through drywall and other debris that had collapsed, obstructing the stairwell. Then he encountered flames. He recoiled from the fire, but still someone helped him. An angel urged him along. There was still danger, so it led me to the stairwell. <coughs> Excuse me. Led me to break through, led me to run through the fire. There was obviously someone encouraging me. That's not where you go. You don't go towards the fire. He covered his head with his forearms and continued down. Now running, he was singed by the fire. He believed the flames continued for three stories. So he ran through three flights of stairs that were all on fire. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, he reached a clear lit stairwell below the fire on the 76th floor. Only then did the sense of a benevolent helper, one who had been with him for five minutes, end. Francisco said, I think at that point it let me go. When he was making his way down, he passed three firefighters, firefighters, climbing up the stairs. What are firefighters? Firefighters. Firefight, fire, oh my gosh, firefighters. People who fight fires for a living, they do something. I'm having trouble breathing, he said. He was told he would find help at the bottom. Ron continued down as fast as he could, finally reaching the plaza level. He headed for an exit, but, exit, but was stopped by a security guard who told him it was too dangerous. He looked out in horror at the falling debris and victims. He was directed towards another exit. He walked back through the concourse towards the northeast exit near Church Street. He was still in extreme danger. 56 minutes had passed since the plane hit. Good Lord. The impact had severed many of the South Tower's vertical support columns. The heat from the explosion had, and fire had weakened the steel trussles. The floors of the crippled building began to pancake down. So they were just all crushing each other. All the floors were just smashing. <gasps> Yeah, it was really, yeah. Okay, wait, why weren't there any firefighters? I haven't heard firefighters helping people. Well, whole entire story. he passed three on the stairwell. Remember? Right, but. I said firefighters. Firefighters. Um, because they couldn't get up the stairs. Fireflies. Fireflies. Um, <laughs> because stuff was so, like, there was so much smoke and fire that it was difficult. A lot of them did go in in both buildings um in different places so which one is safer the second building wait 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 was it actually his friend at the very beginning who told him to hurry up and get out or was it no that was just somebody who called him from i think it was canada yeah it was just a normal person um, as he approached the church street exit ron heard an ungodly roar he saw a fireball as the building compressed. He doesn't know what happened next and was unconscious for some time after his narrow escape, waking up much later at St. Vincent's Hospital in Manhattan. So he was the last person who made it out of the tower alive. Um, okay, so he was the last person who made it out of the World Trade Center before it came down. God, I'm like sweating. Uh, do you need water? No, I'm okay. I'm fine. It's probably because I'm wearing jeans and a shirt. Okay, so that was his story. And then, well, do you have any thoughts about it? First impressions, comments? Okay, well, I don't have a poem. I'll think of one, though. You, okay. You have to wrap it for me. Just kidding. Okay, I can do that. It's just make 
rapist. Okay, so this next story, Yoki. So this next one is also from John Geiger's book. It's shorter. John Geiger. John Geiger's book. Okay, so this one is. What's I up with that name? John Geiger. It sounds like a um. There used to be a musical artist I listened to whose name was Teddy Geiger. I don't Maybe think they're brothers. They might be related. Maybe it's his son. Teddy. Um, huh. Te Theodore Geiger. Okay. Theodore. So the early morning was perfectly still and silent. I'm not even gonna pronounce. Try to pronounce his last name, so I'll just say James. Let me see. Let me. See. Okay. Savinsky. Savinsky. I have no idea. Set. It's Savinsky. It's what? It looks know. like um French or something. So James, we'll call him James. Well, his name is James, so we're calling him by his proper name. So he was a 28-year-old university student originally from Hanover, New Hampshire. And his friend Richard Whitmore set out to climb Delta Form, which is a mountain. Uh, a mountain in the Canadian Rockies near Lake Louise, Alberta. They ascended an ice gully in bright late winter on April 1st, 1983, roped together and using ice screws in their climb. Whitmire, a 33-year-old from Bellingham, Washington, was in the lead and at one point cut some ice loose. He yelled a warning, falling ice, to James below. The ice catapulted safely past James, but was suddenly followed by the collapse of a snowfield above where they were on the north face. Is this the story of the avalanche? It is an avalanche, yeah. Okay. Did you read this one? No, but I just know what falling snow means. It is an avalanche, yeah. Which is like one of my, I would be so scared. <sighs> A tremendous roar broke the silence and the bright light was consumed by instant darkness. An avalanche swept the two men nearly 2,000 feet to the base of Delta Form. James was unconscious almost from the moment the avalanche hit, which thank God... I would not want to be awake for that. Whitmire might have escaped, but the pair had the pair not been roped together. So they were both tied together. Cause I guess when you like climb mountains and stuff, you all tie, everybody's tied together to be safe. So if one person falls, the other person can help them. So they were tied together. So James regained consciousness. He guessed probably an hour later, he was severely injured. His back was broken in two places. One arm was fractured. The other hand had severed nerves from a broken scapula and was hanging limply at his side, which is gross. He had cracked ribs, torn ligaments on both knees, ow, suffered internal bleeding, and his face was broken. I play a video game where you're supposed to get as many bones broken as you can. Really? Yeah, it's a real thing. What's it called? Bones broken. Wait, is it really? Well, you can't actually go on the app store and find it. You have to go on a game that has a whole bunch of games. It's like a secret game? Sure. It's called Roblox. It's a game within a game. Okay. So, basically, it's like Minecraft, but a bit <clears throat> different because they're, you can get a Microsoft account and go into these different places. And you can try making your own. But this one, you can also make your own. And it's inside of Roblox. You can make your own. And that's one of them. Someone made it. It's a bone-breaking interesting. Also, I drooled while you were talking about that. Did you notice? I drooled my drink. It's like on my chin. Okay, well, I could have just not said anything. But yes, I, I drew on myself a little bit. I missed my face when, or I missed my I mouth. when I'm sleeping because I accidentally leave my mouth open. When I wake up, my pillow is all wet. But that means you had good sleep if you drool because you're sleeping deeply. Um, okay, so his nose was broken. His teeth were broken. Teeth? Uh, yeah, his teeth broke out. I've had my teeth broke <sighs> two, two times. Really? Yeah. It was probably not enjoyable, was it? No. Yeah. It was freaky, freaky. Oh, yeah, that would scare me. One time it wasn't as bad, just my cousin was throwing toy cars. Oh, 
And it broke a it tooth? Just chipped. Ow. Did you bleed? I had a blister on my lip. Yeah. Blood blister. Is that the cousin who comes over here? No. Oh. It's a different one. Daniel. Hi, Daniel. Uh, yeah, he was a mess. He had no idea where he was and what had happened to him. At first, he th thought he might be in Nepal, where he had spent six months trekking a few years later. So he just was completely out of it. James had finished his master's degree and at the time of the accident was basically a climbing bum living out of his Volkswagen. It took a while for him to recognize the mountain, but gradually, James remembered the climb and struggled to his feet to look for his friend. Whitmire lay nearby, and from his misshapen body, it was clear he was dead, so his friend died, which is awful. Yeah. I would hate it. I would not like to. I would not enjoy my friend dying. No. That would, and you're, like, in so much pain and, like, confused. I hope my friend's okay. She's all the way in Africa right now. Not be good. Um. Yeah, so he, when he saw his friend like that, he was like, I'm going to die. He said, I figured that if I fell asleep, it would be the easiest way to go. He lay there uh, in the snow for about 20 minutes. Shivers were gradually replaced by the sensation of warmth brought about by shock and hypothermia. So when you have hypothermia, like you're super, super cold, like in the beginning, but then you get really hot. And that's... I've had that happen. Yeah. Like when I put the water in the bathtub too hot, I'm like, oh, wow, why is it cold? Mm-hmm. Yeah, your body freaks out. So he started to doze off. He realized that there was no... Um, he realized there was no vast gulf separating life and death, but rather a fine line. And at that moment, James thought it would be easier to cross that line than to struggle on. So he was like, I just kind of wished I had died. He then felt a sudden strange sensation of an invisible being very close at hand. It was something I couldn't see, but it was a physical presence. The presence communicated mentally. The message was clear. You can't give up. You have to try. It told me what to do. The only decision I had made at that point in time was to lie down next to Rick and to fall asleep and to accept death. So he just wanted to lay down with his friend because he thought he was going to die, which is probably what I would do. That's the only decision I made. So long, friend. I really I will miss you. I'll come see you soon. Sure. All decisions made subsequent. Wait, James died or his friend? His friend. Okay. Whitmore. Whitmire. Whitmore. The 33-year-old. What? Yeah. Okay, then he's only 20? He's 28. Oh, okay. I guess that makes sense. Mm-hmm. They're buddies. Um... I was merely, uh, wait, here. All decisions made subsequent to that were made by the presence. I was merely taking instructions. I understood what it wanted me to do. It wanted me to live. So he felt this other presence with him. Yeah, like the third man factor. The third man. The presence urged James to get up. It dispensed practical advice. It told him, for example, to follow the blood dripping from the tip of his nose as if it was an arrow pointing the way. As he walked, he kept on breaking through the crust of the deep snow and was almost unable to pull his feet back up because of his injuries. Part of the time he crawled, the presence which stood behind his right shoulder implored him to continue even when the struggle to survive seemed untenable. So it, he didn't think he was gonna make it. And when it fell silent, James still knew his companion was close at hand. Because of its enormous empathy, he thought of the presence as a woman. She accompanied James across the Valley of the Ten Peaks to the camp he and Whitmire had started from earlier that day, a point where he hoped he could find food and warmth and perhaps help. Such were his injuries that it took all day to make the crossing of about a mile, um, and his companion was with him every step of the way. When he reached the camp, James could not crawl into his sleeping bag because his injuries were too severe, which makes me so sad. He probably felt so awful. Um, and he could not eat because his teeth were broken and his face was swollen. He could not even light the stove. He sat down and from the position of the sun realized it was late afternoon. He believed that in a couple of hours he would be dead after all. I recall knowing I was about to die pathetically in a fetal position in the snow. Oh my God. I know. Just like, 
It's friggin' rough. You can't do anything. I would, yeah, I would have given up. Um, he had always felt that he might die while climbing, so it came as no real surprise. But he thought about how devastated his mother would be. Then at once, he thought he heard some other voices and called out for help. There was no response. It was at that moment that he felt the presence leave. It was gone. There was nothing there. There was no presence. There was no one telling me to do anything, and I could tell that it had left. For the first time since the avalanche, he was overwhelmed by a sense of loneliness. Which is so sad. When I thought then... Uh, what I thought then was I'm hallucinating. The presence knows I'm dead and it has just given up on me. But as it turns out, those were people and they did come up. One of them skied out and they flew me out that night in a helicopter. In fact, the presence had left because it knew he was safe. Alan Derbyshire, who was in a party with two other cross-country skiers, had heard a faint cry. Help, I've been in an avalanche. Derbyshire. 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 Oh, yeah, let's just call him Derbyshire. Derbyshire. Had Derbyshire not heard him, James would have been left for the night and would have almost certainly have died. As there was no other skiers or climbers in the area, Derbyshire found him staggering around in bad shape. I got the impression that his condition was critical. Despite that, James was quite lucid when I asked him what had happened, although he was obviously weak and soaked in blood and in shock. Like, good, his back was broken in two places. <laughs> yes, he was very hurt. Okay, wait. Every time you say Derbyshire, you just make a weird smiley Derbyshire? It's because I'm talking my accent. It's very, it's very important. Derbyshire. Um, so James didn't tell them about his unseen companion, because probably because he thought they would think he was crazy. In a newspaper interview, Banff National Park, God, I'm sweating, rescue specialist Tim Auger later said James was both lucky, was lucky both to survive the fall and then be discovered by cross-country skiers who happened to be in the area. James understood there was more than luck involved. Hold on, one question. So did you have any thoughts about the avalanche story? Oh, no. With James? Lots of injuries. Mm-hmm. Lots. Mm. He broke all the teeth out of his mouth. Every single one? No, probably not. Okay. It's probably a lot. Okay. It would not be fun. Yeah, how would snow do that to you? If it's hard enough and you're in an avalanche, those move quick. And that's like a lot of weight on your body and stuff. I would hate that. I'm kind of claustrophobic. I know. And you might get buried by it. No, it scares me. Avalanches always creep me out. I don't like them, but the deep sea scares me more. Really? Yes. I mean, sharks and stuff. But sharks are rarely hungry. But there's, like, a lot of gross stuff in the ocean. I don't like it, man. Like what? Like, flipping, like, an octopus. And like Those a manta ray. No, was... they're disgusting. Have you seen my octopus teacher? Teacher? What? No. It's a documentary. It's really good. I haven't watched it yet, but I really. <gasps> it is. It was. Because they're like, so smart. They get they attached bond. to They bond this, and they, they get attached to people. With people. And they're really intelligent. They literally. And they like to play. Attach. No, I don't like any of they that. They literally attach you to it. Nay, nay. Nay, nay, that is like my worst. Mm -mm. Okay. So now I have a story from Reddit user. User. Credit user. Ariel Flip. Credit to her. I don't know, it's her story, man. I gotta give credit where credit is due. And it's to Ariel. It's actually your mom's story. Just kidding. Okay. I was like, really? Ariel. Okay, so her little short story was my experience with a spirit guard. They, they say spirit guardian in this, but I feel like it's the same thing. Happened this way. I was traveling west on a divided four-lane highway. There were openings for turns about every quarter mile. It was 6.30 a.m. and raining just enough to piss you off. Misting slash spitting. A wo woman T-bones me on the back driver's side fender. I spin and come to rest in the median, all grass and mud and rain. Out of nowhere, a guy shows up on my driver's side window. He has a large cowboy hat on. Which, <laughs> okay. 
He says, you're going to be okay, and he holds my hand. I asked him his name, and he looks away like he doesn't want to tell me. Then he says, Bill Hill. I smiled and said, thank you. Another motorist who stopped called 911, and an ab ambulance is dispatched. Good Lord. I'm, you're a terrible reader. I'm a really bad out loud reader. Oh. Why, like, my eyes move quicker than my brain can comprehend. It's just, uh, there's a lot of issues. I'm a great reader. Highest level in my... Um, out loud? Class, yeah. Really? Mm -hmm. I'm not. Um, when they arrive, he moves out of the way for the EMTs to get me out of the car. The car is totaled. There's no gas le glass left. I thought it said gas, and I was like, okay. So, she got checked out and got to go home with broken ribs and a shattered kneecap. Oh, that was pretty nice. Okay, cool. A few days later, my mom takes me to see the car. What a wreck. I like reading other people's stuff. Um, I told her to help get some personal items from the car. When I looked in the back seat, there's the dude's cowboy hat. I told my mom about him, and we both proceeded to try and find him to thank him for being so it's kind. Not dude, it's Bill Hill, right? Yeah, it's Bill Hill. He never existed, and we lived in a small town of only a few thousand at the time. We checked with police in the churches and everywhere. How did his hat get in my back seat? He wore it the whole time and held my hand and had the hat on when he got out of the way for the EMTs. I think he was an angel. Why would I have his hat? So that was that was just a little short, little short ditty. That's more about like a. Why would I have his hat? He flung it in the back seat. I don't know. Like dude the door open like. well she said there was no glass so he just threw it in the back seat that could be true bill hill or the, the trunk did the trunk have any glass i have no idea they opened the ariel flip did not give much detail in her story ariel flipped did she hear that mom she did not Okay, so this is the final story. Final story. From Reddit user Sleepless Survivor. What? Okay, cool. So he says, or she, I don't know. My dad reads. she? I don't know if it's a guy or girl. Oh. Sleepless Survivor. My dad recently told me the story and I was just amazed. I thought you guys would like to hear it. Thanks, Sleepless Survivor. <laughs> When I was young, about three or so, I was hospitalized and near death, and I had a fever that just would not break and was passed out for most of the hospitalization. My dad, who has always been religious, wanted the hospital's priests to come and say a prayer for me. Um, so the priest comes by to pray for me, but something's not right about the guy, which sounds concerning. He never gives his name and has no Bible. He says the entire prayer in Latin and blesses me. Now, my parents aren't married yet, and since the priest is there, they ask why they haven't been able to have another child yet. Which I'd be like, that's a little intrusive, but okay. Um, they've been trying for about a year with no luck. The priest tells them that they won't have another child until they're married. The priest then leaves after that, and an hour later, my fever breaks. The next day, the hospital priest comes to a room, to the room and says a prayer for me. My dad is confused and tells them, tells the man that someone had already come the day before. So he's like, what the heck? Somebody already came in here. Like with the, with the churchy people. To which the man replies that no priests were on duty the day before. He checked with all the hospital staff and their visitation book and everything. Nothing turned up. No priest was in the previous day. He searched for years to find this priest that prayed for me and he never found a single trace of him anywhere. A month after my mom and dad got married, my mom got pregnant with my little brother. So we'll never know who the mysterious man was, but I like to think he's my guardian angel. To this day, my dad still has found no record of him, not even someone who looks like him. Whoa. Some, Yeah, it's weird. Someone was looking out for me that day. I just wish I know, knew who. And that was the last story. Wow. Phone time or thoughts there's a lot well it's kind of hard because they were both the first two were like unseen presences yeah. and then the last two were like like they saw the person they so it's saw it and then they were like no record maybe they were dead and they took the record off 
But what do you think about the last story? It's just amazing. That this random priest came in and prayed for him and they were like, we don't know who that is. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. And he said, like, an hour after that guy left, his fever broke, even though he'd been in the hospital for a long time. And the priest had been like, get married, and then you'll have another kid. And then when his mom and dad got married, they had another baby. They got pregnant a month later. That's a little weird. He can tell the future. And then he went into the future. He knew some stuff. Maybe he threw his record away. You think? Do you think it was a real person? I mean, if you could see them. Uh-huh. Wait, wait, wait. Was he touched? Because if he was solid. I do not know. Sleepless Survivor did not say if they were touched or not. Because he could be solid or he could be... But he knew that his parents weren't married. I know. So, what are your final thoughts about the know. third man factor? What do you think the third man factor is? People hallucinating and sometimes seeing someone helping them. So, you think it's like all in somebody's mind? Yeah. But if other people see it, then I don't know. Maybe it is a person because the parents saw him too. Mm-hmm. Well, and then, but in the avalanche story, the third man told him how to get out and, like, which way to go. Exactly. But he Mm. wasn't seen. Yeah, he didn't see anybody. He just felt them. It's weird. It's, like, I mean, it's not, like, a super, super common thing that happens to people who get, like, lost or injured. But it's common enough that it's happened to a lot of people. Where people will get helped by something and... Maybe it could be an animal. A shape. It's probably a werewolf or a vampire. Or a witch. I don't know what it is. A werewolf. I don't know how that compares to the story. Or a vampire. I think it's probably a very helpful werewolf who is helping them get out of trouble. But... Werewolf. I don't know. Say werewolf again. Werewolf? Do I say it weird? Do I say wolf weird? <laughs> werewolf. <laughs> you say werewolf. Werewolf. Wolf. Wolf. Werewolf. No, that's weird. Werewolf. Werewolf. What? <laughs> the more you say, the weirder it gets. Werewolf. No, it's normal. <laughs> I'm a normal person. <laughs> it's where You say werewolf. Werewolf. I, I don't know how I'm saying it weird. It's fine. It's I am an adult. Wolf, like a wolf. Werewolf. Wolf. Wolf. I don't know. You're missing the L. Whoa. I miss a lot in my life. It's fine. It's, it's okay. Okay. I apparently, I can't read either. It's, it's all right. But, so you think your final, your final conclusion is that. People hallucinating or seeing. It's just their brain making up stuff. But then again, I don't know because the parents in that last one saw it too. That one might not be exactly the same. Because the one and like all the stories in the John Geiger book are people who are like stranded, who are helped by something they can't see. Right. I just put in some other stories from Reddit. Okay. I don't know. It's very interesting. But thank you for... Joining me. What about the poem? You said there's a poem. Oh, oh my god, thank you. Yes, there is a poem. Good lord. Okay. You're not great at remembering stuff. Dude, I'm not. We're reading. And apparently saying werewolf. It's okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just my opinion on things. I say a lot of things really weird. Okay, so the poem that we talked about in the beginning. Oh, T.S. I read it? Read it? Read yeah, you can read it. Okay. It's... From T.S. Eliot. Who is the third... Wait. Who is the third who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together. But when I look up ahead, the white road, 
there is always another one walking beside you. Gliding wrapped in brown mantle hooded, I do not know whether a man or a woman, but who is on the side of you? Other side of you. Who is on the other side of you? Sorry. You did good, girl. I'm kind of good. You're a bit better. Girl, you did fine. You're bueno. Okay. That, thank you for reminding me about the poem. I forgot. Yeah, sure. T.S. Eliot. It's very beautiful and very weird. What about the shout out? You, you, oh, okay. You didn't teach me. Okay, you just, you just say like, Hello! I just want to do a shout out to my brother and sister, Jamie. Oh, wait. Two brothers and one sister, Jamie, Rye, and Ramona. Thank you. Yes. Yes! Okay. That was perfect. Thank you for joining Something Seems Off, production and music provided by Anchor. And we are here to remind you, if something seems off, it probably is.